Good morning, fellowship family. Let me invite you to stand. In Christ Jesus, no matter what today has brought you, no matter what tomorrow brings you, in Christ Jesus, we are complete and lack nothing. Amen. We have everything we need in Jesus for life and for godliness. So let's celebrate that together today and sing out in Christ alone. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, and my song. This cornerstone is solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of Oh! 
Well, hey, Fellowship, I wanna let you know we're gonna be doing something new. On October 8th, we're gonna have our first ever all outdoor worship service and picnic to follow at 10.30 a.m. in the Westfield. Don't come at 9 a.m., you get to sleep in this morning. But at 10.30 a.m., we'll be all together, the whole church, in the Westfield at 10.30. Well, hey, Fellowship, I wanna let you know we're gonna be doing something new. On October 8th, we're gonna have our first ever all outdoor worship service and picnic to follow at 10.30 a.m. in the Westfield. Don't come at 9 a.m., you get to sleep in this morning. But at 10.30 a.m., we'll be all together, the whole church, in the Westfield at 10.30 a.m. There'll be worship, we'll have baptisms, there's a teaching and a picnic to follow. So here's what we need from you. We need you to bring a chair and a blanket, bring your own food, and bring a game, because we cannot wait to hang out with you that day. I promise you they're not a Texas fan, for you old, old school folks. So they are trained to help you get plugged in, to answer your questions on how you can get in a small group here at Fellowship. So October 8th, like Caleb shared in the video, it's a big deal for us at Fellowship. We're gonna have one worship service in the West Field with a picnic to follow. So please bring your food, bring your lawn chairs, bring your kids, bring your Bible. It's gonna be incredible. So please join us that day. Fellowship men, September 26th in Springdale and September 27th in Rogers. We are launching our fall seven-week series. We'll be taking specific verses out of Philippians and applying them to a man's life. And so this morning, we have a special guest here to share with us about Fellowship Men. Aaron Koff, please come on up. So Aaron is one of our small group leaders in Fellowship Men. Can everybody say hi, Aaron? So he's gonna answer a couple questions this morning. So Aaron, tell me, why would a man get out of a perfectly comfortable bed at 5.30 in the morning to be in Springdale at 6.30 or Rogers at 6.30. Why would he do that, Aaron? Well, thanks, Derek. Um, I thought a lot about how to answer this question, and uh, my first thought was to tell all the men out there that if you come to Bible study, your life will change for the better. But I think every man in the room actually knows that if you come to Bible study, your life will change. And so the real challenge is to convince you that it's worth it. Um, it's hard to do in two minutes, because there's a lot of reasons why men might decide not to come. I would know my first two years here at Fellowship, I didn't go. So how do you convince a man who is afraid that he might be the only one there with really big problems that having problems is actually a prerequisite to get in and that every man that walks in the room is well acquainted with their shortcomings and that they're all committed to supporting each other's burdens? Um, how do you convince the man that believes that uh, he doesn't have time in his schedule that... Um, Getting into the Word with other men deserves far more prioritization than an extra hour of sleep or browsing the news or catching Sports Center, and that spending time in the Word with other men is actually one of the most life-giving and encouraging ways you can spend your time. Um, how do you convince the man that um, has come in the past and then stopped coming because of busyness or a lack of connection that sometimes the richest things in life require some real commitment and that engine might take a few pull starts before it starts to run and if you decide to stay home this year, that's the surest way to ensure that this experience ends with a bad story. 
And then lastly, how do you convince the man who believes that um, he's fine? He doesn't need to go. Uh, all of his hidden sins are under control. That was me. How do you convince him that he's wrong? How do you convince him that sanctification doesn't end and that we're in a spiritual war and that being a part of a group of men in the mornings meeting over the word is a great way to get involved in that war? That's a lot to say in two minutes, Derek. <laughs> Thanks, Aaron. Uh, <laughs> he's good at it. So also, Aaron, I had, a, I had a question for you. So just personally, like, what have you derived from fellowship men going I'm going to say perspective. Um, one of the enemy's most clever tactics here in the Northwest Arkansas is uh, to distract us and to put us to sleep and to take us out of the fight. We're ineffective. Um, there's always going to be another game to watch or to play or another streaming show to binge or another vice to indulge. And um, I think that one of the most profound ways to change a person is to adjust their perspective. And Proverbs 27, 17 says that as iron sharpens iron, one man sharpens another. And implicit in that statement is the idea that like any tool in the hand of a craftsman, that with time, we grow dull and we need sharpening. And being around a bunch of men diving into the word is a great way to do that. Um, we, we stand before a crowd of witnesses, we're told, in Scripture. These are the saints that came before us, and they're watching, and they spent their time, they did their duty, and now it's our time to get out on the sand and fight. And so how has it changed my life? It's, it's, it's got me into my Bible more. That's the most important thing. It's um, developed spiritual discipline in me. I'm a better father. I'm a better man. I'm a better friend. And my, my kids and my wife need that from me. So men, if you come, it will change your life. It will get you in the word, and that's time well spent. Thanks, Aaron. Appreciate it. Fellowship, lastly, next Sunday, September 24th, Samaritan Community Center, which exists to share the gospel with the underprivileged in northwest Arkansas, is having their open house. So after the 9 o'clock service and 1030 service, please get back on 71B, travel north about 500 feet, take a left, and go on their tour of their facility. You will be very impressed, I promised. For example, their dental facility is actually nicer than my dentist that I go to, so please don't tell Hank, Hank that. Sorry, Hank, if you're here. Um, <clears throat> but it's a really excellent place. We're all also gonna find out how do we lock arms with them and serve Northwest Arkansas. We'll also have an opportunity to serve next Sunday by packing up some snack pack for kids and just going to be a great time celebration so please join us next sunday and also all the information that we shared this morning is of course on our app so please download that if you don't have it please stand with us this morning as we continue our worship service amen fellowship family just be aware that there are still people coming in so you might have to make room for those who are trying to find a seat stand in the victory of Jesus Christ. Amen. The fight is to stand firm, all right, in the victory that Jesus Christ has already won. Let's sing together. There's peace. There's peace that outlasts darkness. There's hope that's in the blood. There's future grace that's mine today that Jesus Christ has won. I can face tomorrow, amen. Oh, tomorrow's in your hands, all I need. And all 
You've already 
praise the Lord for his sufficiency in our life. That no matter what life throws at us, that Christ Jesus is always working in us. Amen. We are always being built up in Jesus, and that is because God is a good God. Amen. Let's sing of his goodness. I love you, Lord. Oh, your mercy never fails me. All my days have been held in moment that I wake up until I lay my head I will sing other than goodness he's faithful all my life you have been faithful all my I love your voice You led me through the fire And in darkest night You were close like no He's a father and a friend I know you as a father I know you as a friend And I Every breath that I 
fellowship family. You can have a seat. Hi, my name is Isaiah, and I get the privilege to serve here as a worship leader at Fellowship Fayetteville. And this is Joanna. Hey. And we've had the privilege to get to write on this new song, To Live is Christ. And we wrote it out of the book of Philippians this year. And it comes from a couple core verses here in Philippians that Joanna's going to share. Yeah, so um, our main passage that we wrote out of was Philippians 4 verses 12 through 13, and what that says is, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through Him who gives me strength. And you'll see um, this scripture directly quoted in the lyrics of the song, as well as passages all over the book of Philippians. Yeah, we're so excited about the song, and we hope it blesses you as it's blessed us.
this world and tried every pleasure. You have found enough of me. great song. What a great job from you guys. Well, Lord Jesus, we want to echo the words of that song as a prayer from our hearts. That nothing in this world measures up to the thirst that we have for peace and contentment and satisfaction in this life. And we can chase after it and it'll be chasing after the wind until we find you. So Lord, we echo a simple yet profound line from Philippians this morning that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Lord, as we open your word this morning, would you guide us? Would you give us understanding? Would you give us boldness to apply it to our lives? It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. We'll open your Bibles this morning to the book of Philippians. Today, we're in week two of a 12-week series studying this New Testament epistle verse by verse. Now, you may have noticed that my voice is a little raspy. I had a rough day yesterday, and I know that most of you are probably thinking, oh, I know what he did. Pastor went to the Razorback game and yelled at the officials for the excessive amount of penalties that were assessed our team which is partially true. <clears throat> but I actually choked on a carrot yesterday <laughs> while watching football, and uh, it got a violent coughing fit going to where I actually ended up having to go to the doctor and get a steroid shot and lost my voice. So hang with me. I've been attacked by a carrot. 
I'm off carrots, by the way. (laughs) Last week, we opened the study by looking at the first 11 verses of the letter, and here's what we learned. The Apostle Paul, who was a first century evangelist and missionary and church planter, wrote this letter to the church at Philippi from a prison cell in Rome. Now, Paul had a close bond with this church. In fact, he founded this church. He planted it on his second missionary journey. And this was the first church planted by the Apostle Paul on the continent of Europe. And we learned that Paul loved this church. These were his people. He had a shared faith with them and they had a a shared heart. He knew them personally and intimately. He had a first-hand, first front row seat witnessing their incredible and supernatural coming to faith in Jesus. And because they had faith in common, they had a relationship that was uncommon. The opening of the letter expressed Paul's love and fondness for the Philippians. He remembered them with gratefulness. He kept them in his prayers and he acknowledged them as dear friends and partners in the ministry of the gospel with him. Today, we're going to move past the initial pleasantries of the letter, and we're going to dig into the first reason for Paul's writing. Why did the Apostle Paul write this letter to the Philippians? Well, his initial purpose to write to them was to update them on two things, his personal well-being and the status of his ministry. Because of Paul's imprisonment, the Philippian church, of course, was concerned about him. And they were also worried that his confinement might actually hinder the spread of the gospel. So Paul wrote to them to give them a situational update. Hey, I do want to remind you that we have a companion study guide available for this series. You can pick one up in the foyer on your way out. It's also available online as a a PDF. Everything's going to be there on our website. Uh, Just go to fellowshiprogers.org forward slash Philippians. It'll all be there. The teachings, the study guide, the teaching slides, it's all there. You can also access that through our new app. Hey, let's talk about the study guide just a little bit. This is designed to be an inductive Bible study. Are you familiar with that? Let me remind you quickly. An inductive Bible study actually has three steps aiming to answer three questions. And we use the study to study a particular passage of Scripture like we will today. The first step is observation, simply answering the question, what do I see? In this stage, you're simply discovering obvious facts about the passage. The second step is interpretation. It answers the question, what does this mean? Here, we're digging deeper. We're seeking understanding. We're addressing any problems, complexities, or difficulties in the passage. The last step is application. We're answering the question here, how does this work? Here, we're trying to figure out how to live this stuff out in our own lives. All of this is available online. There's even training videos from our own Nick Rowland to help you figure out how to use this. And you also have a bookmark in your study guide. And on the bookmark, it gives you questions to ask in each stage. Now, here's what I want us to do this morning. I want us to actually take a few minutes and practice inductive Bible study live in our time together. So if you have your study guide, go to page 18. If not, follow along with me on the screen. And I wanna read the passage to you And then let's engage in that first stage of observation. And we're going to ask, what do we see in this passage? 
So hear the words of Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 20. And as I read them, I want you to hear the Apostle Paul, a man in chains, from his Roman prison cell, writing to his dear friends in Philippi. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true. Some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether by false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice for I know that through your prayers and through God's provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ that what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body whether by life or by death. Now here's what I want you to do. I want you to look at the passage and let's answer that first question. What do I see? Let's make a few observations and let's just tackle the first one on your bookmark. When it comes to this passage, what are the basics? The who, what, when, where, why, and how? We have a clue within the passage to answer a few of these. You can also draw on last week's sermon or even the overview found in your study guide. So who are we talking about here? Who wrote this letter? Paul, who did he write it to? See, we're all 100% so far. What did he write? Well, we're going to see he's writing a situational update to his dear friends. When did he write this? Well, it says that he's in chains, so he wrote this during his imprisonment. That's why we call this a prison epistle. Where is he at? The text doesn't say. Most scholars believe Rome. Some say Caesarea. We'll go with Rome. Why did he write it? Well, do the math. His dear friends in Philippi are concerned about him and his ministry. Well, how did he communicate? Well, he wrote them a letter. Now, was that hard? You guys are brilliant. Let's keep going. Let's look for some repetition in the letter. Do you see any words or phrases repeated in the text? Two times, three times, four times. There's one up here, six times. Do you see any repetition Take a look. If you've got your study guide, I go in and circle these. Circle the repetition. Now do a little ticker count. Do you see any? Can I share a few that I found? The first one is significant, even though it's only repeated twice. The passage is booked in by a phrase, what has happened to me? You'll find out that's very important to understanding this text. But Paul also, Paul also describes himself. He describes himself as being in what? Three times. Yeah, y'all saw that. Chains. This is kind of like a, 
uh, one of those word things on the paper. This is fun stuff. Why is Paul in chains? Yeah, he's got the word preach or proclaim in there four times. Who does he preach? It's always a safe answer. Six different times the word Christ is in the passage, three different times gospel. Now, a lot of times you can take just the repetition, what has happened to me? I'm in chains for preaching and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. You see it? Sometimes the repetition tells you everything about the passage. Let's move on to this kind of observation. How about cause and effect relationships? These are reasons for or results of, often using the words because or therefore. Do you see any cause and effect relationships in the passage? I'll give you a second just to look. Yeah, if we go back to that key phrase, it's a cause and effect relationship. He says, actually, what has happened to me has what? Served to advance the gospel cause, effect, relationship. Uh, there's another one in there. He actually uses the word because. He says, because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become more confident. They've become more emboldened to share the gospel I'll share one more. It's at the end of the passage. It's actually given in reverse order. The effect is given first. He says, I want Christ to be what? Exalted in my body. And then the cause of that is by either how I live or a true reality to Paul would be how he dies. He's facing a possible death sentence here. Last observation. Let's look for comparisons or contrasts. This is where it takes two things and shows how they're similar or two things and shows how they're different. And there's actually a huge contrast in this passage. Did anybody pick up on it? It takes up a lot of verse space. Look at verses 15 to 18. It's one big contrast. It's contrasting two different kinds of preachers. One rightly motivated and one wrongly motivated. We'll take a look at that later and jump to step two of inductive and do some interpretation on that particular part of the scripture. Now, was that hard? Anybody? I usually spend 15 to 30 minutes working through all of that. We just spent just a few and see how much we learned. I wanna encourage you, start practicing inductive Bible study as you work through Philippians. Don't waste your bookmark. Hey, let's work through it verse by verse. Paul's writing to give a situational update. He referred to what has happened to him. It reads this way. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Something has happened to the apostle Paul. We see in the letter, three times he says he's in chains. And so uh, jumping to step two of inductive Bible study, we ought to ask, what's going on here? What did happen to the apostle Paul? What's occurred in his life? What's caused the Philippian church to be so concerned or worried about him? And in order to answer that question, we can actually go back to the early church history book, which is the book of Acts, and we can find the story of Paul's suffering. We won't spend a lot of time here like we did last week, but look at Acts chapter 20, verses 22 to 24. It says this. 
And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. So after finishing his third missionary journey, Paul traveled to Jerusalem where he would find himself surrounded by controversy. His time in Jerusalem was a nightmare. He was falsely accused of crimes, mobbed and beaten by an angry crowd, taken into protective custody, placed into the Roman legal system where they would keep him in prison for over two years. The story of Paul's suffering actually covers eight chapters in the book of Acts. You can find it from Acts 21 to 28. I'll let you read it in your own time. But here's the highlights of his ordeal. He was seized by a mob, placed in the custody of Roman soldiers, put on trial before the Sanhedrin and the high priest, survived an ambush plot to kill him, transferred to Caesarea under the protection of prison guards, appeared before three Roman officials, Felix, Festus, and Agrippa, sent to Rome to appear before Caesar, shipwrecked on the way from Greece to Italy and snake-bitten on the voyage and then imprisoned for over two years. So yes, absolutely something has happened to the Apostle Paul. There was good reason for the Philippian church, his beloved and dear friends, to be concerned about him. But look at the second part of verse 12. Paul says his suffering, what has happened to him, has actually served to advance the gospel. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear to the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all more to proclaim the gospel without fear. His dear friends in the church of Philippi want a status update. They want a situation report on Paul's well-being and the status of his ministry. He started with the mission update first. The question that needed to be answered was this. Had Paul's persecution and arrest suppressed the success of his mission? Have Paul's chains prevented him from proclaiming God's word? And look at the end of verse 12. Paul says, actually, my persecution and my chains have served to propel gospel proclamation. What was designed to quench the fire of the gospel movement has actually heightened its force and advancement. It's like pouring water on a grease fire. The gospel movement actually gained momentum as the result of Paul's imprisonment. In fact, at every stage of Paul's persecution journey, which is recorded at the end of the book of Acts, he preached the gospel to the angry mob in Jerusalem, before the Sanhedrin, and before each of the Roman officials. And now here, even in prison, look at verses 13 and 14. Paul gives a couple of ways the gospel was advancing. Verse 13, Paul tells us that he witnessed to his prison guards, the palace guard. He took advantage of his close proximity to the soldiers who were tasked with his security. 
And it was clear to them that Paul the prisoner was in chains because of Jesus. His firm belief, his passionate proclamation of the message was heard loud and clear by those who managed his imprisonment. And verse 14 tells us that because of Paul's chains, others, the church, brothers and sisters have become emboldened. They've become more courageous, more confident, more daring, risk-taking in their efforts to share Jesus. It's interesting to note that persecution often is designed to silence the gospel, but it backfires. It has the opposite effects. I was talking with a couple of our global workers last week, and they told me that today the gospel is advancing fastest in the nation's with the highest persecution rates. Places like Iran, or North Korea, or Afghanistan. Note this, you cannot stop the gospel. Persecution is fuel to the flame. The servants of God who are suffering for the cause of Jesus serve to strengthen and resolve others. Our Philippian study guide said it this way. Far from shutting down, or even stalling out, his imprisonment actually helped spread the gospel further than Paul could have dreamed. What was meant to suppress ended up advancing. Look at the contrast. It's found in verses 15 to 18. It seems that Paul's imprisonment not only brought him trouble from the outside, but he also faced resistance from inside the church. As well, verse 15 says, it's true. Some preach the gospel out of envy and rivalry. Is that stunning or what? When I'm studying and I read something like that, I circle it and say, gotta figure out what that says, especially if I'm preaching it. Some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. That's what you would expect. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for defense of the gospel. The former Preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. Hmm. Paul notes two preaching factions in Rome, one motivated by goodwill, the other by ill will. One motivated by love and sincerity and support of the apostle from a good heart, the other out of envy, rivalry, insincerity, selfish ambition, trying to stir up trouble for the apostle. Both groups were preaching Christ. Both were preaching accurately, but they had contrasting motivations. One preached out of envy and rivalry while the other preached out of sincerity and love. One had ill will, the other had good will. One intended to support the apostle, the other strived to harm him. All was not well in the Roman church. As the legendary apostle arrived in Rome, he was met with Genuine care and concern from local believers, but there was also a faction who resisted him. Maybe because of his fame or his ministerial success, because they were envious that the church now looked to the apostle as their leader as opposed to the locals who preceded him there. They could have been resentful at how Paul's attention and trial in Rome was disrupting their local and ongoing ministry. I'm sure it was 
tough on local Roman ministers to have the preeminent evangelist and missionary and theologian and leader of the early church to come to town and consume everyone's attention, to bring controversy to the, even that word gospel. So there were two opposing groups preaching Christ. Both were orthodox in their contents. Otherwise, Paul would have noted it, see the book of Galatians. Their difference was not found in their view of Jesus or the gospel, but in their view of the apostle himself. One group supported Paul, the other considered him a rival. And these wrongly motivated ministers preached a true gospel, but they did so with a perverse heart. These guys were petty and territorial and jealous and self-promoting. They preached Christ hoping that it would not only win over sinners, but also make Paul's situation worsen. They wanted to add suffering to the weight of his chains. So how did Paul react to this? What was his response to this? Did he go toe-to-toe? Did he respond uh, to insult with insult? Not at all. Paul took the high road. In the tug of war of what the gospel proclamation should look like in Rome, he let go of the rope. Look at verse 18. He says, but what does it matter? As long as Christ is preached... Let's roll. He applied soothing ointment of grace to the wounds inflicted by the immature. He put the advancement of the gospel as his sole aspiration. Above his bruised body, his hurt feelings, his relational frustrations was his priority on the proclamation of Jesus in the leading city of the world at that time. The gospel was his first and foremost priority He chose to keep the main thing the main thing. Now, as a minister, over the course of my years, I've had people come to me and um, prod me. I would even say bait me into saying something critical about other churches or other ministries or other pastors. It's like they light a stick of dynamite and say, hey, what do you think about them? And hand it to me. Fishing for a critical comment. And in these situations, what I found the best thing to do is to cut the fuse on the dynamite and let it drop. Offer support instead of throwing shade. And that was what was modeled to me by my mentor, Robert Cup. I watched him do it a thousand times. Somebody would bait him about a local church, a local minister, a national minister, and Robert would look at him and go, you know what I admire about them? He would give them a compliment. He would drop the rope. He would cut the fuse and say, let me tell you something they do really well. We need to support our brothers and sisters in Christ from other ministries, regardless if we have small differences in doctrine or philosophy or strategy in ministry. Amen? So quit talking bad about others and me. Despite hardship from opposition outside the church, And even in the midst of opposition from within the church, the Apostle Paul could not be robbed of his joy. Find that word joy or rejoice 19 times in the letter. His resolve to give his all for the cause of Christ could not be diminished. He said this, yes, I will continue to rejoice, says the man in chains being persecuted from his fellow brothers. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ, that what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. 
I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. While in chains for the cause of Christ, while facing physical and relational and political persecution, Paul rejoiced. He chose to see his circumstances through the eyes of heaven. He was a man at peace, and he was certain that he would be delivered, whether he would be set free in this life or in the next. Paul rested in the fact that his future was one of freedom in Christ. And I love verse 20. Paul gives us a window into his perspective on life purpose. Why are we here on this earth? Ultimately, we exist to exalt Christ. Whether by life or by death, one gets the glory. And next week, we'll read his most famous line. He says, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. We can summarize the whole passage today this way. The unstoppable gospel is worthy of unlimited sacrifice. Amen? The gospel will advance. It cannot be locked up or shut down or stifled or muzzled or, or suppressed or silenced. And there's no cost too high to pay to ensure that it's proclaimed to all nations. So let's move to the third step of inductive Bible study. How do we work this out in our own life? Have you taken personal responsibility for the proclamation of the good news about Jesus in this world that you live in? Have you taken up the cause of Christ? Or do you view that as an assignment to those who are specially called? The evangelists, the missionaries, the church planters, and the ministers. Is the evangelization of our local world and our global world a task given only to the paid professionals? Now, the scriptures are clear. God has called all who believe to give all that they have so that all may hear the good news of Jesus. You are assigned to share Jesus with your children. It's not the children's ministry responsibility. You're assigned to share Jesus with your neighbor, with your coworker, with your friends, your family, across the street and across the world. So question one is, are you on the team? Question two, what cost would you be willing to pay to advance the gospel of Jesus? And is there a limit? We live in the USA. We rarely pay the price of persecution or suffering. We don't face imprisonments or physical threat. Those are not in play at this point. So what if advancement of the gospel costs you some time or some energy or some emotion or some money? What if it resulted in embarrassment or awkwardness or being considered a weirdo zealot? What if you got ostracized or called to HR? Would you be willing to invite someone to church? Or to your community group? 
or to buy someone a Bible or to give resources to a global organization or your local church to fund evangelization. The unstoppable gospel is worthy of unlimited sacrifice. Hey, I want to introduce you to a couple. Come on up. This is Rhonda and Spencer. And these two guys are heroes of the faith for Fellowship Bible Church. In fact, these are a couple of our first global workers that we ever sent out from Oakdale Junior High back before we ever moved over here to Pleasant Grove Road. They've been ministering in Southeast Asia for over 30 years. And so Spencer, uh, let's start with you. Oh yes, please, please. Fist bump, fist bump. Let's start with you. A, give us a ministry update from the field. Um, what breakthroughs are you seeing? Give us a, a good story of gospel advancement because God's doing some really cool things where you're at. He is, and your emphasis is right. God is doing some exciting things. Um, basically, the process looks like this. We go out and talk to people. We talk to lots of people every single week. We're going out. We're looking for those who are spiritually searching. When we find them, we invite them to gather a group and discover who Jesus Christ is. As I mentioned, we go out and talk to random people. That's where most of our groups form. We also do disaster response. So if there's a disaster, we are the first ones to show up to bring aid. Uh, one group started because we showed up, our, our house was flooded, and we showed up with shovels and shoveled out the dirt and invited them to discover who Jesus is. This particular story comes about through Facebook. We run ads in Facebook, and this lady responded to one of our ads. Our local team began to communicate back and forth with her. We used prophet stories and Jesus stories, and they studied via WhatsApp. And the final question of each story says, who are you going to share this with? She said, with my family. Well, just prior to the last Jesus story, our local team decided it was time for a face-to-face -face meeting. So they showed up at the, the place where she lives and her family. They studied through the last story. And the story ends with a question, you've discovered who Jesus is according to the Gospels. Who do you say that Jesus is? Now, I want you to understand the context our local partners have gone to an area that's 100% Muslim. There are people in our country in jail doing what they're doing. Think about the lady. She lives in a 100% Muslim area. Every person she knows is a Muslim except for this Christian husband and wife that showed up to tell her about Jesus. She knows that people have been beaten. They've lost their jobs. In-laws come and, and cause a divorce and take the kids away. There's a price to be paid. So they're asked the question, who do you say that Jesus is? And they say, we believe he is Savior and Lord. That day they prayed to receive Jesus. Hmm. We're not about making converts. We want to see disciples made that make disciples. And so our team immediately led them through a study on the commands of Christ. The first being, be baptized. So they were baptized together. Then they continued study, studying through the book of Acts, and our team will guide them to see 10 key characteristics of Healthy House Church. And they're applying them right now to their house church. In addition, they're sharing with their extended family, brothers, sisters, and inviting them to study and follow the exact same process that they went through. So Sam, what we're seeing in our ministry, we could give many examples it's happening where we are and across the globe. Literally millions of people are coming to Christ 
Because God is at work in such dramatic ways. And as you said here, the gospel cannot be stopped. That is so awesome. Rhonda, I would love to hear from you. So 30 years in the field. Yep. It's not been an easy go no. all the time. You guys have been apart from family. You've been yeah. through some natural disasters over there and all kinds of things. What, what keeps you going? I said I wouldn't cry. <laughs> but it's okay. Because we're going to cry together because the worthiness of Jesus, the worthiness of Jesus, the worthiness of Jesus, that's what keeps us going. Earthquakes, where it pancaked half of our island, where we didn't know, are we going to live through it? And we re-sign up every time there's a suffering, every time you go through suffering, it is an opportunity for breakthrough. It is an opportunity to say, who is the one to whom I belong, and do I fully belong to him? And our worthiness of Christ determines everything. Terrorist riots on our island, imprisonments, medical evacuations. You know what? That's the norm of our space of where God's called us to 277 million Muslims in Southeast Asia that God's called us to. What Spencer shared is a myopic view of what happens when you first get started in multiplying house fellowships of Muslims who begin to understand the one to whom they see is worthy. So for us, Sam, to be real honest, when Jesus says, if you love me, you will do what? You can finish that, John 14, 15. Those of you who have memorized that. If you love me, you will obey, obey my commands. It's just that simple. It is just that simple where you are, where I am, where Spencer is. It is just that simple because he's worthy. Conditional obedience never ends well for any of us. Conditional obedience is never an option, but we will never choose to obey the one to whom we do not love, and we will never choose to love the one in whom we do not trust, and we will never choose to trust the one with whom we spend no time. It is just that simple. He is worthy. He's worthy for you in your neighborhoods to say the lost need to be found because they need to discover the worthiness of Jesus it is just that simple. And you have sent 11 of fellowship through the years that God has pleased our hearts to see you raised up from this body to go with us to Southeast Asia and our daughter in Middle Earth. I'll say she's in Middle Earth. So thank you for sending us. Yeah. In fact, we have more global workers in Southeast Asia from Rogers, Fellowship Rogers, than any other place. And God's doing something really awesome there. He's literally changing the color of the map from unreached to having gospel workers. And it took 30 years to see that happen. So, um, hey, um, not only have these guys lived it out, you actually wrote a book called Stubborn Perseverance. Does that sound like them? Stubborn Perseverance. This is what we use to train global workers at Fellowship. And uh, we'd love for you guys to, to be prayed for this morning. Can I pray for you? I would love that. Yeah. Lord, we thank you for Spencer and Rhonda. Literally heroes of the faith to us. 
And Lord, we thank you that they didn't just take the gospel across the street, they took it across the world at great cost. And Lord, they're not looking for kudos today, but just that you would continue to use them in a mighty way. So Lord, um, thanks that they're home. I pray for peace and for rest for them. She would re-energize them to go back out and continue the work. And Lord, we thank you for every soul that has believed in Southeast Asia because of their efforts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Would you stand with us as we respond to the message and song? The gospel of Jesus, it's the hope of the ages, burning brighter and brighter. Standing forever The church he is building Nothing can stop it It's a city that shines It's a light in the darkness Nothing can stop it
Fellowship. Hey, thank you so much for being with us today. If you're here today and this word gospel, this kind of radical thinking doesn't make sense to you, we'd love to follow up with you. I'd love to meet with you personally and grab a cup of coffee, but you could also join us in our prayer room, which is located to your right. We'd love to pray with you about anything and everything going on in your life. Hey, if you'd love to meet Rhonda and Spencer, in fact, he's going to give away a few copies of his book today. They're out in the foyer. I'd love to see. Hey, we love you. We'll see you next week.